Um, it's been uh, quite a long time since I've been to uni, but I still do remember those days, as dark as they get in my uh, faded memory of the past. But when I first started uni, oh, by the way, actually, before I even start, um, it's hard to read here, but on the bottom of every single slide, there's a website, redeemermcr.com slash ask. If you have any questions, any comments, any complete flaming disagreements that you want to send, uh, it's all anonymous, so you can you know, say whatever the heck you want. Um, but what, I, what I'll do is I'll, uh, especially the questions and things, uh, I'll try and answer them to the best of my ability, and then they get sent out in the weekly email that we sent. If you want to be on that weekly email, you have to fill out the connect card and thing, but um, yeah, so that's just there for you. Uh, so send all the hate mail towards redeemermcr.com slash ask. So yeah, so when I first started uni, uh, I studied studio arts, like drawing, painting, sculpture, things like that. I didn't really know how to draw before, um, so it's weird they would pick you know, that to focus on at uni. But I had, took lots of drawing classes, and uh, the thing that I learned, the secret to drawing well, was actually was seeing well. It wasn't first about the technique of drawing, it was first about actually seeing the thing that you want to draw first. Because if you can't see the thing, how could you expect to reproduce what it looks like? And th those courses really trained my eyes to see things that I thought I saw, but then was kind of thinking with a, a bit of a new brain of, of how, how to actually look at the world. I mean, how does that light really hit that table instead of how you think a table looks like? Those are two very different things. An example, if I told you to draw a ball, you'd probably draw that. Like, yeah, that's a ball. It's also whatever else might be circular, a tire or a face, I don't know. Um, it can be lots of things, but it's acceptable. It's what a ball looks like. But if you had a ball and you really looked at it and were drawing what you actually saw, it would probably look something similar to that, if you can see it with the lights. It's how the light hits the ball is different than how you think a ball actually looks. So seeing is a skill. And after my courses, I was looking at the same things in life, but I saw them in a different way because I was thinking in this new way. And this is a bit like what this psalm is inviting us to uh, in verse 8. Um, and if you have your Bibles, just keep your Bible open there because we will be referring to it a lot. Verse 8 says, just kind of throw away three words, come and see. Like, oh, yeah, come and see what the Lord's done. Okay, yeah, come and see. But there's an invitation here for us to come and see what God is really actually doing in our world. It's not an easy thing for us to see that. It's not immediately what we often think of. So with these words that God is speaking to us today, he's inviting us to see something. These words are an invitation to see the true reality behind what we see with our eyes. I mean, for those of us with sight, we're very much focused with our eyes. We see what we believe, and if we don't see it, we don't believe it, or at least it's a big struggle. We're visual kind of animals. We live in a visual culture. Now, particularly if you follow Jesus, it might be easy to see how there might be enemies set against us that have basically been given free reign to do whatever they want, and they appear to be in charge. I mean, does anyone out there really in Charlton care about what Jesus has to say or what Jesus has done? Church buildings are not being flooded with people coming in, right? And there are so many difficulties in life that we're faced with loneliness, addictions, an overall sense of having a life without consequence. If we don't have the eyes to see what God is actually doing, we won't understand where he's at work. Because it's easy to see this world as it is and be discouraged, but God wants us to see the true reality of things. He wants us to come and see what's actually truly there, not what we think is there. So God wants us to see who he is. God wants us to see what he's done, what he's doing in our lives really now, even as we sit here in the moment. And so what we see in these verses is that God's power makes peace. God's power makes peace. And this is done in two ways. In these, and we're going to focus on verses 8 through 11 because we uh, did the previous seven verses last week. Uh, God, God's power makes, war, uh, makes 
peace. And really, in two things. One, God makes wars cease. And then the second thing is God calls our noise to cease. So God makes wars cease. Um, I'm just going to read these last three verses. Come and see. There we go. Come and, come and look at this thing. What the Lord has done, the desolations he brought, he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So let's hit that first thing that um, God's speaking to us today, that, the, that God makes wars cease. Now, poetry is different than uh, writing a narrative or different than prose. Like the, there are less words to use, so that it's really important to pick the right kind of words because there's much less of them. I think there's an incredibly crazy word in verse eight, desolations. That sounds like what it, what it is. Like des- who, you, you can't say the word desolation very flippantly. You have to say it with like the movie theater voice, like desolation. It has to be like, there's a gravity even to the word. It just sounds, it sounds heavy. It's one of the words that it just sounds like what it is. It's a horror is what it means. The worst you can imagine is what a desolation is. As an example, if you're an Israelite reading this, the worst thing that could possibly happen would be your temple is destroyed. Because you, as an Israelite, your primary identity is you follow Yahweh, God of Israel. And for God's temple to be destroyed, either he's left or he's been conquered, both of which are completely like, decimating to your identity. That's a desolation. God has brought horrors against those who work against peace. God cares more about peace than we do, as much as we want peace in our lives. God cares actually more about it. And he's, he's going to make sure peace exists. And he's going to bring desolations against anything that is going to stop his peace from continuing. He doesn't tolerate weapons of war. Wars cease to the ends of the earth. That means not just for an Israelite, not just for a certain people group or a certain nation state or a certain time in history, to the ends of the earth. That's everybody, everywhere. All kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds. And then it says, he breaks the bow, like an arrow and a bow, um, and shatters the spear. He breaks the bow. Bow is, a, if you're using an arrow to shoot somebody, it's like a target that's far away, like a drone strike. You're not really connected to that person if you're trying to kill them. A spear is something you're quite connected to. You're literally like pushing a spear into somebody's body. That would be crazy. Um, but he, he destroys both, whether they're enemies external and far away or enemies that are quite internal and close. God destroys it all. And he burns the shields. You might have a, a, a little translation note that says shields could also be chariots. Either way, God burns the things that are stopping his, his peace from coming. Now, I think it's important for us, if we're talking about enemies, and if we're talking about in this kind of like really kind of heavy language, for us to make sure we're like seeing our enemies rightly. Who are our enemies? This, is, this would easily be connected, these words would be easily connected to Israel's experience because they have outside nations that are literally trying to kill them with bows and arrows and spears and all sorts of things. So that is an easy thing to understand for someone who's reading the psalm in the ori- for the original audience. Uh, now, what's it like for us, though? Because this is still the word of God. It's still just as applicable to us, to people in all kinds of histories, all kinds of places. But we're not in this context of war. And also... We don't exist before, this is all stuff that happens before Jesus. What does this mean for the church? Not a nation state, not a country somewhere. We're the people of God, and that's different than a nation. So how does this apply to us? Who are our enemies? Because our enemies aren't very easily named. If you live then, you'd be like, oh yeah, those guys, those guys, those guys, those are literally our enemies. They have names and we know what they're, what they're trying to do to us. Our enemies are not as easily named. 
think maybe one way to think about it is the bow and the spear. So the bow is for enemies who are far away. These are enemies that are external to us. For in our lives, enemies against us could be people who are working against us, difficult work colleagues, difficult neighbors, difficult work situations that I know some of you know very much about. People who don't like us, and we don't know why, but they're kind of like set against us. We all have those kind of people in our lives. Sometimes it's, though, it's people who are actually close to us, relationally, that can hurt us the most, because they know exactly how to, hurt, how to push those buttons. It could be circumstances outside of us, losing a friend, losing a job, a big financial burden, all of these things everyone is going to experience if you haven't experienced them yet. And they're all very difficult. But it can also be uh, spiritual, dark spiritual forces that exist in this world that aren't out for our good. There's the accuser, the enemy, Satan himself, and all the dark spiritual forces that accompany him. Sometimes that kind of, of enemy is overt. And if you've ever had a strange and weird kind of spiritual experience like that, it can be really scary. But more often, it's behind the scenes. They keep us in addictive cycles. They keep us from, from uh, pursuing God and pushing into God's people. They throw circumstances in our life to trip us up. That's not something we often really talk about, right, these kind of spiritual things. But we functionally live as if they don't exist. But we are in the minority of the world for like, kind of believing that the spiritual world isn't a, re- a reality. We're in a minority not only in the world now, but in all of history. For us to really believe that the spiritual world doesn't really matter that much, that's a very strange position for humans to take. And there are plenty of external enemies in our lives. I'm betting probably more than we realize. Maybe that's for our good. Maybe it's good to be kind of ignorant of all the enemies that are set against us. So that's kind of the bow idea, like these enemies that are far away or enemies that are external to us. What about the other side, the spear? People who are so close or things that are so close to us, like they're connected to us. I think maybe a good metaphor this is bringing up for us in our time is internal enemies within ourselves, like fear. The time that we all live in now should actually be the time where humans have experienced the least fear humans ever have. But that's just not true. We're fearful of all sorts of things. We have the least reason to be. We might even be more fearful than people who are hearing this psalm originally. But we have all sorts of reasons to not be. Like, What's the deal with that? That means fear is actually not even attributed to something external. Fear is something that's going on internally. Fear of losing things, fear of not getting the things we want, fear of the future, fear that the past will come to haunt us. We fear all sorts of things. But isn't it interesting that the main thrust of the psalm in the beginning is in verse two. It says, therefore, we will not fear. The earth can give way. There could be literal earthquakes. Mountains could be thrown into the sea, but we will not fear. Worse things than we've experienced in our lives can happen, but we will not fear. We'll not fear that we lose our job. We'll not fear that we didn't get that job. We'll not fear that we're lonely. We'll not fear though desolations will come. I think another kind of strong internal enemy against us are uh, the brothers' guilt and shame. Guilt is I've done something bad. Shame is I am something bad. And they work together. Messages of guilt and shame tell us I'm not enough. I should be a better person. I'll never have what it takes. If people really knew me, they wouldn't want to know me. I mean, how do you fix that, right? We don't know how we fix that, so we stuff that down. We live under an accumulation of years and years and years of this guilt and shame on our backs, and we're stooped over. We don't realize it until the burden gets lifted. The first thing guilt and shame do is make us hide. Actually, the, the, how our brains process shame, the, even the part of our brains that processes shame is pre-rational, pre-cognitive. It's before we even think of doing anything. 
So Colin, but when he was little, too little to even understand what was going on, if he did something wrong, my son, he did something wrong and we saw it, he would hide his face. He would turn his face away or, or put his hands up. He's hiding. He's not thinking, I did something bad. I'm feeling shameful. I should hide from mom or dad. He was too little to understand that. But then we do think, and often doesn't get better <laughs> because we're like, oh, not only am I hiding, now I'm thinking about how shameful I am and it just gets worse and worse and worse. If anything, the more we think about it, the more guilty we feel, the more shameful we become, then we just need a release. So we go and do something else and try not to think about it, or we stuff it down. Christians, are, we're really good at stuffing things down, really good at having like a facade on a certain day or with, when you're with certain people, but really what's going on inside of you, you just keep that down. I mean, there's a version of Christianity out there, a bad version, by the way. It says, you must perform at some level in a Christian walk, whatever that is, however that's defined. And when you don't, you just learn how to fake it and stuff all that stuff down. I mean, at the end of our worship gathering that we who have been part of Redeemer for over a year now, we all say together, all our guilt and shame we send to the cross of Christ. We say that together every single week. It's part of our worship. We don't have to carry these burdens because Christ has taken them from us already. But what does it really mean to send our guilt and shame to the cross? Because it can easily just become something we say and not believe. Well, let's look at the cross for a moment. Look, the Lord does not tolerate war. It may not look like he cares. It may not seem like whatever enemy you have set against you as he's destroying you. It may, not, it may seem like God is actually caring. But if we come and see what the Lord has done, the way the psalm's talking about us, what do we see? The most important thing our Lord has ever done for us is the cross. What does it mean to come and see there, seeing Jesus, the God himself hanging on the cross, about to die? What did he do? The biggest desolation the Lord has ever brought is the cross. The most disturbing horror this world has ever seen is God dead. The grotesque scene of God's children attempting to put him to death, the religious establishment working against him, the political establishment working against him, all to see the end of the God who only cares about them. And what does Jesus say when he's on the cross? What did he declare? He says, it is finished. It is finished. Jesus wasn't like, ah, it's sort of finished. Just kind of wait and be good a little bit. No, it's finished. And with those words, all wars everywhere cease. That's why we can say all our guilt and shame we send to the cross because it's all been destroyed. It's all been taken from us. It's all ceased. The things that eat at us, the things that slowly kill us, the things that uh, we get to proclaim each week, the reality of it is finished. We send our guilt to the cross to die. We send our shame to the cross to die. In fact, they're already dead. We might try and pick them up, of course. The enemy tries to put them on us, of course, but they're already dead. They have no hold on us anymore. It's not like Jesus said, it's finished, and then it had a long list of terms and conditions, like spoken really quickly. If you're really good and read your Bible every day and 24-7, you're praying about me and all these other things. That's not how it works. That's not what Jesus said. Thankfully, thank God he didn't. It is, it is finished, applied to all who want to make Jesus to uh, have our wars cease. The wars externally, the wars internally, if we, trust, if we trust Jesus, we get his peace. And he gives us to us. But... Hang on for a moment. Am I just getting too excited? Am I just being too American? Is this really actually true? Like, really? Like, really? Because in my experience, even as I'm saying this, I'm like, man, I don't know if I really believe this. 
Am I being too American? <laughs> because wars are really still going on. Like, wars are going on. We feel like the battles that are raging in, in each one of us, even as we sit here and listen to this and wondering if it is true. None of us have experienced a complete ceasing of all wars in our life yet. But here's the thing. The war has ended. The enemy has no chance but to surrender. The enemy has already surrendered. But there's a long time between the end of war and the end of fighting. The war is over. Their skirmishes are still going on. You know, there are stories about this very thing happening in both world wars. I found loads. Here, here's one example of this. Um, there's a Japanese lieutenant uh, called Onada. He was in the Philippines during World War II, and he was commanded to go into the jungle and kind of engage in guerrilla warfare. It was like a few months before World War II ended. So a few months later, the Japanese had surrendered. And Onada and his men, they saw from these leaflets that the Japanese surrendered, but they thought it was all kind of like a, it was all fake. Like, how could the Japanese, they would never surrender. That's not how it works. So they stayed in the jungle for another 29 years, committing guerrilla warfare, burning rice fields, killing people, doing all sorts of things that you would do in wartime. But eventually he came out after, basically, after all his men were killed, eventually he came to believe that there was a surrender and the fighting ceased. Now this is just what life is like now if we come and see for a moment. The war is over. The fighting might still continue. But our enemies, they're in denial. They don't understand what's going on. Or if they do, they're in complete denial. They're still engaging in guerrilla warfare, still trying to burn parts of us down, still trying to take other parts of us out. But we're not going to let that happen. And more importantly, God is not going to let that happen because he makes the war cease. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the shields. And what are we doing in all this? Really, in this psalm, what are we doing in all of this? We're just the recipients of peace. God doesn't say, you have to go out and fight that battle and burn that shield. It's like, no, I'm going to do it. And you get the peace. God's awesome power goes to the furthest lengths to give us peace. He desires us to experience this. It would be easier for God to not care, for God to simply not work, for him to just kind of be like, oh, maybe I'll work with other people who are better. But he just wants to make our wars cease. So if we want peace in our lives, we must rely on the one who brings it. We can't rely on ourselves. We have tried that. We know it doesn't work. We're like, ah, but maybe this time. Like, no, it's not going to work. It just doesn't work. So we do this weird thing. To counteract the bows and spears against us, we create these kind of wonky, malformed weapons and try and take on the enemy ourselves. When all along, the reason we aren't to fear is because God is at work with us, against or for us. We need help, and God is at help, but we're off doing our own thing, taking matters into our own hands, and we're just not enough against our enemies. We're going to be taken over by ourselves. And sometimes, really, it's easier to be overtaken by guilt and shame than it is to surrender our pride. And that's a choice we make. Because if we surrender our, our pride, that means we have to seek God to fight the war for us. But it is better for us to just give in to God. Let's all recognize that really that we're not good enough, that we're not strong enough, that we don't have what it takes by ourselves to overcome the enemies that are waging war against us. And the good news is we don't have to be. We just have to learn what it means to release our chokehold on life. I remember growing up um, in America, the G.I. Joe toys, they, had the, they advertised the Kung Fu grip, which is like, like this, because you could put all sorts of things in there. They, that G.I. Joe, if you put a thing in there, would never drop the thing because of a Kung Fu grip, right? That's the same kind of thing that we have on taking, care, like taking matters to our own hands. We have the Kung Fu grip on life. But repentance is me being okay with not being enough. Instead of like this, I'm more like this. Being okay with that. And actually living as if that's true, even when I don't believe it. So God not only makes the war cease, he also calls our noise to cease. 
In a world where every voice is vying to be noticed, paid attention to, God tells us in verse 10, he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, it's one thing to be at war. It's another thing just to be noisy. I mean, what's the point of war anyway? The point of war is to be the winner, to be the best, the biggest, who has all the stuff, have all the wealth, the power, whatever, to be feared, to have all things, to be exalted. And for others to know that you're exalted. But God's not having that. God is the one who's exalted, and he's the one who's above all things. Now, this can be a really comforting verse, be still and know that I'm God. It's a verse that maybe some of us you know, have nicely framed in our houses, and that's good. But really, first, it's God telling us that our noise is out of alignment with his way. And to realign ourselves with him, we need to shut up. It's a rebuke against our noisy, busy lives. So he tells us, be still and know I'm God. I am, you are not. That means all our activity can be at odds with knowing that God is God. That's why he tells us to be still. I mean, how does following this God change your busyness? Or are you just as busy as the next person in life? And let's not mistake being busy with productivity, but actually being about things that matter. I think one reason we have an epidemic of busyness, I know one reason I have a problem with busyness in my life, is I'm afraid that my life isn't going to matter. So we're not involved in the deeper, th deeper, hard things of life. And so to make up for that lack of quality, we just throw a bunch of quantity at it. It doesn't matter what, just as long as we do stuff, as long as we don't stop. To make up for not having lives a consequence, we resort to busyness. I don't want to say that, because that hurts. I'm a recovering workaholic. I know what it's like. And this rebuke of be still, it doesn't sit right with me, because I just want to kind of start doing stuff. I want God to say, do stuff. That would be amazing. That would serve my workaholism really well. But really, what is our busy, was busyness about? It's about us getting stuff done in our power, and we get the glory, and God is not going to have that. God is going to be exalted. Not just in the places where we expect with people that we kind of assume are going to be like that. He will be in the highest place among the nations, above all kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds, throughout all history. He will be in the highest place in all creation. And that's an affront to our busyness. The battle is the Lord's. The glory is the Lord's. The work is the Lord's. Now, here's why I think he might be telling us this. I mean, is this just God being like a needy teen, kind of begging us to be like, tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me, give me a, some kind of compliment. Is God just being super needy here? What's the deal? Well, God knows that if he's in the highest place, that's the best thing for us, because that's what order looks like. The psalm was a lot about order. It's not just about getting the right things. It's about getting the right things in the right order. You don't build a pyramid with the high point at the bottom or in the middle. That's chaos. The pyramid falls apart. All the noise that we make, all our busyness ceases in the sight of an almighty, all-powerful, all-loving God. And when we get a glimpse of that, we can't help but cease. We can't help but sit back and stop. This world doesn't often give us glimpses, though, so we have to work for it can be difficult sometimes. It's like a long hike through a mountain trail, but then you finally, you get that vista and you're like, oh, it was worth it. This is God with us. And that kind of God, that's our fortress. That's who's, who's strong against the enemy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, has a great quote about silence. Uh, silence means nothing other than waiting for God's word. Silence means nothing other than waiting for God's word. He tells us to be still because he knows the only way we can be fully alive is if we wait for God to speak to us and to know what to do. Otherwise, we're doing what we want to do on our own terms. 
We, he can't work through us if we're off busy doing our own things, if we're not still, if we're off making noise all the time. How are we going to hear him? When we speak, are we interrupting God? With our busy lives and our, our crammed diaries, are, are we interrupting God? One can't be a disciple unless one's silent. Otherwise, will he, we hear him speak to us? I think really all of us were starved for the spiritual things in life and we'll keep on starving unless we make room for God to take that up, make room for him to speak, make room for him to work. One of Colin's uh, favorite jokes at the moment, he's really into knock-knock jokes, which for Colin is basically just like, as long as words are said back and forth, he thinks it's hilarious. Um, we, all, we often do it in the mornings when I'm like barely awake. But his favorite one that he can actually do is the interrupting cow knock-knock joke. Are you familiar with that? Like knock-knock, interrupting cow, moo. Uh, I know it's really fun, especially when you do it like 15 times in a row. That's kind of like how our lives are with, if we don't listen to God here. We become the interrupting cow. God's like, but I want to. And you're like, no, that's cool, I got this. God's like, but I want to tell you, no, 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 I got this, that's cool, that's cool, God, I'll talk to you later. We don't want to be like that. We want to hear him. We have to hear him. We want to feel him work. We want to know that he's at work in us. And God is the one who will be in the highest place among all people in all times and places. That means for us who follow this God, we're called to step back from looking for security in anyone or anything other than God. Our security is found in Jesus. Not in the money we have. Our security is found in the Lord Almighty, not in the friends who get us, not in the family we dream of, not in the house that we have or we don't have. We are fearful of a life that doesn't matter. I know I am. So we try and fill it up with anything. But God's telling us, you will not have a life of consequence unless you depend on me for everything. And if we start there, if that's our starting point, that changes everything else we're involved with. Because God doesn't say, just be still and never do anything. God calls us to do lots of things. God calls us to be ambitious. God calls us to work hard in our passions. If he didn't, Christians wouldn't really be of much use. It'd be a very kind of boring life. But if our starting point is that we are still before God first, before anything, we recognize his claim over the earth. We depend on him to make our wars cease. We're determined for him to get the glory. That actually frees us now to be the humans we were made to be, to be part of the things that we really care about in ways that's different. Because now we bring God with us to actually bring the power of the spirit into all things, which is what we need. A life of consequences depending on the spirit in all things. That changes our jobs, changes our parenting. How can we be a good partner to people that we love? How we can be good friends? How we can serve the church in a way that's life-giving instead of soul-sucking? This psalm is all about order. And as we've seen, life in the right order doesn't mean we won't come across trials. Enemies are there, wars are there, they're gonna be there. It does mean we're equipped to survive them and actually even thrive through them. When those bows and spears are armed against us, are aimed against us, we won't fear because we depend on the spirit of the living God who makes all wars cease and ex exalted in the earth among all peoples. And he's already told us, it's finished. And so these verses really do point to a time when all wars and fighting and skirmishes will be completely over, because one day that will happen. When the peace that is in this psalm won't be seen through glimpses and cracks, we won't have to be called to come and see because it'll be flatly in front of our faces. The peace will be stark and in front of us. And this is in the new heavens and the, and the new earth that Revelation 21 talks about. This is John um, getting a vision of what, this, what our future looks like as people who follow Jesus. Um, this is John speaking. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, 
much like the way that this psalm talks about the city that God lives in. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, come and see, come and see. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. Jesus to John in the past is talking about what Jesus is doing in our present today. He is making all things new. It's in a, we're in a process of that. It's not yet done. One day it will be. But we can trust that God is actually working in our lives now, making all things new, as even a place like Manchester can reflect a place like heaven. But Jesus started and finished on the cross. It won't be completely finished, completely realized until this new heavens and earth. I mean, the Father wanted a people for himself, people whose tears he could wipe away, people whose mourning he could end. The problem was all these people tried to run from him. They created instruments of war, spears and bows, and they fought each other often. And when the weapons weren't, those weapons weren't fashionable anymore, they made other new weapons, more intricate weapons that could still just damage each other. And instead of depending on the Father to provide for them, they wanted to provide for themselves. In doing so, they brought themselves to abject poverty. The Father saw this, and he wasn't put off because he's all in. So he sent his Son who willingly came to this war-torn world to win these weapon-wielding people back. They mostly didn't listen. They mostly didn't care. They turned their weapons actually against that son and killed him. But a few days later, the son rose from his grave. You see, no weapon in all of creation is a match for this kind of God, for this king. And as he resurrected himself, free from death, he told these people, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I will be exalted in Manchester. And for all who follow him, he gives the gift of himself, the Holy Spirit, God living in us. And this God gives the gift of peace, gives the gift of us not having to rely on our weapons, the gift of being able to be silent and behold him, the gift of being able to actually cease all the work and all the business that we rely on and embrace the love of the Father. And that is what we get to celebrate at this table. Because the Father had the plan. The Father had a plan. The Son was sent into this world, took on the horrors we've created, and became a horror himself. All this so that we don't have to be at the mercies of our enemies. Then the Father and the Son sent the Spirit into the lives of all who depend on him. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Paul gave instructions to the church, a new church then, at a place called Corinth, saying basically, how to do this thing? How do we celebrate the bread and the cup together? In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul continues, he says, In the same way, after, after supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread... And drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what Paul says. You proclaim his death until he comes. What a strange thing to say, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Until we experience new heavens and earth that we kind of like read, like that was almost too good to be true stuff. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. 
So today we proclaim horror until beauty is actually fully restored. So if you follow Jesus, come celebrate this hope with us. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer. You don't, if you don't yet have the hope, though, that I just talked about, um, what this table is about, please don't take it because we don't want you to participate in a ritual that doesn't make any sense to you. But for all of us here, though, wherever you feel like you might be with Jesus, this table's open. If you want to rely on him to work instead of yourself, this table's open for you. If you've been a Christian for a long time, think of what it means to proclaim horror until beauty comes. What does that mean in your own life? What does it mean for beauty to be restored in your life? What are the hopes that you're holding out for? What are the things you can look back and see what you've been saved from? If you haven't yet trusted in Christ, think about what it could look like to experience this kind of peace we've been talking about. Because it's not too good to be true. It's actually true. It is too good. And it is also true. Because our God makes the war cease. He calls us to make noise cease. And he pursues each one of us to rely on him in all that we do. Let me pray.